Chapter Six of Ticonderoga by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. The return of Lord H. without his guide and companion, Captain Brooks, caused some surprise in Mr. Prevost and his daughter, who had not expected to see any of the party before a late hour of the following evening. Not choosing to explain, in the presence of Edith, the cause of his parting so suddenly from the hunter, the young nobleman merely said that circumstances had led him to conclude that it would be advisable to send Woodchuck in the boat with Walter to Albany, and his words were uttered in so natural and easy a tone that Edith, unconscious that her presence put any restraint upon his communication with her father, remained seated in their pleasant little parlour till the hour for the evening meal. "'Well, my lord,' said Mr. Prevost, after the first few words of explanation had passed, did you meet with any fresh specimens of the Indian in your short expedition? The question might have been a somewhat puzzling one for a man who did not want to enter into any particulars, but Lord H. replied with easy readiness, Only one. Him we saw only for a moment, and he did not speak with us. They are a very curious race, said Mr. Prevost, and albeit not very much given to ethnological studies, I have often puzzled myself as to whence they sprang, and how they made their way over to this continent. Lord H. smiled. I fear I cannot help you, he said. Mine is a coarse and unstudious profession, you know, my dear sir, and leads one much more to look at things as they are than to inquire how they came about. It strikes me at once, however, that in mere corporeal characteristics, the Indian is very different from any race I ever beheld, if I may judge by the few individuals I have seen. Bating the grace and dignity, said Edith gaily, I do think that what my father would call the finest specimens of the human animal are to be found among the Indians. Look at our dear little Otezza, for instance. Can anything be more beautiful, more graceful, more perfect than her whole face and form? Lord H. smiled and slightly bowed his head, saying, "'Now many a fair lady, Miss Prevost, would naturally expect a very gallant reply, and I might make one without a compliment, in good, cool blood, and upon calm, mature consideration. I am very poorly versed, however, in civil speeches, and therefore I will only say that I think I have seen white ladies as beautiful, as graceful, and as perfect as your fair young friend.' together with the advantage of a better complexion. But at the same time I will admit that she is exceedingly beautiful, and not only that, but very charming, and very interesting too. Hers is not exactly the style of beauty I admire the most, but certainly hers is perfect in its kind, and my young friend Walter seems to think so too. A slight flush passed over Edith's cheek, and her eyes instantly turned toward her father. But Mr. Prevost only laughed, saying, "'If they were not so young, I should be afraid that my son would marry the Satchum's daughter, and perhaps in the end take to the tomahawk and the scalping-knife. But, joking apart, a tater is a very singular little creature. I never can bring myself to feel that she is an Indian, a savage, in short, when I hear her low, melodious voice with its peculiar song-like sort of intonation.' and see the grace and dignity with which she moves, and the ease and propriety with which she adapts herself to every European custom. 
I have to look at her bead-embroidered petticoat and her leggings and moccasins before I can bring it home to my mind that she is not some very high-bred lady of the court of France or England. Then she is so fair, too, but that is probably from care and the lack of that exposure to the sun which may at first have given and then perpetuated the Indian tint. To use an old homely expression, she is the apple of her father's eye and he is as careful of her as of a jewel after his own particular fashion she is a dear creature said edith warmly all soul and heart and feeling thank god too she is a christian and you cannot fancy my lord what marvellous stores of information the little creature has she knows that england is an island in the midst of the salt sea and she can write and read our tongue nearly as well as she speaks it she has a holy hatred of the French, however, and would not speak a word of their language for the world, for all her information and a good share of her ideas come from our good friend Mr. Gore, who has carried John Bull completely into the heart of the wilderness and kept him there perfect in a sort of crystallized state. Had we but a few more men such as himself among the Indian tribes, there would be no fear of any wavering in the friendship of the five nations." "'There goes an Indian now, past the window. "'We shall have him in here in a moment, "'for they stand upon no ceremony. "'No, he is speaking to Antony, the negro boy. "'How curiously he peeps about him. "'He must be looking for somebody he does not find.' "'Lord H. rose and went to the window, "'and in a minute or two after, "'the Indian stalked quietly away "'and disappeared in the forest. "'What could he want?' said Edith. "'It is strange he did not come in. "'I will ask Antony what he sought here.' "'And going to the door, she called the gardener-boy up and questioned him. "'You want Captain Woodchuck, missa,' replied the lad. "'He asked if he not lodge here last night. "'I tell him yes, but Woodchuck go away early this morning and not come back since. "'He quire very much about him, and who went with him. "'I tell him Massa Walter and his strange gentleman, but both leave him soon.' "'Massa Walter goes straight to Albany. "'Strange gentleman come back here.' "'Did he speak English?' asked Edith. "'Few words,' replied the negro. "'I speak few words Indian. "'So patch them together we make many, missy.' "'And he laughed with that peculiar, unmeaning laugh "'with which his race are accustomed to distinguish "'anything they consider witty.' "'The whole conversation was heard by the two gentlemen within.' On Mr. Prevost it had no effect but to call a cynical smile upon his lips, but the case was different with Lord H. He saw that the deed which had been done in the forest was known to the Indians, that its doer had been recognised, and that the hunt was up, and he rejoiced to think that poor Woodchuck was already far beyond pursuit. Anxious, however, to gain a fuller insight into the character and habits of a people of whom, as yet, he had obtained but a glimpse, he continued to converse with Mr. Prevost in regard to the aboriginal races, and learned several facts which by no means tended to decrease the uneasiness which the events of the morning had produced. "'The Indians,' said his host, in answer to a leading question, "'are, as you say, a very revengeful people, but not more so than many other barbarous nations. Indeed, in many of their feelings and habits they greatly resemble a people I have heard of in Central Asia called Algans, both in common with almost all barbarians, look upon revenge as a duty imperative upon every family and every tribe. They modify their ideas, indeed, in case of war, 
although it is very difficult to bring about peace after war has commenced. But if any individual of a tribe is killed by another person in time of peace, nothing but the blood of the murderer can satisfy the family or the tribe, if he can be caught. They will pursue him for weeks and months and employ every stratagem which their fertile brains can suggest to entrap him, till they feel quite certain that he is beyond their reach. This perseverance proceeds from a religious feeling, for they believe that the spirit of their dead relation can never enter the happy hunting ground till his blood has been atoned for by that of the slayer. But if they cannot catch the slayer, asked Lord H., what do they do then? I used the wrong expression, replied Mr. Prevost. I should have said the blood of some other victim. It is their duty, according to their ideas, to sacrifice the slayer, if satisfied that he is perfectly beyond their power, they strive to get hold of his nearest relation. If they cannot do that, they take a man of his tribe or nation and sacrifice him. It is all done very formally, and with all sorts of consideration and consultation, for in these bloody rites they are the most deliberate people in the world, and the most persevering also. A few days before, Lord H. might have plainly and openly told all the occurrences of the morning in the ears of Edith Prevost, but sensations had been springing up in his breast which made him more tender of her feelings, more careful of creating alarm and anxiety, and he kept his painful secret well till after the evening meal was over, and she had retired to her chamber. Then, however, he stopped Mr. Prevost just as that gentleman was raising a light to hand to his guest and said, I am afraid, my good friend, we cannot go to bed just yet. I have something to tell you which, from all I have heard since it occurred, appears to me of much greater importance than at first. Whether anything can be done to avert the evil consequences or not, I cannot tell, but at all events it is as well that you and I should talk the matter over. He then related to Mr. Prevost all the events of the morning, and was sorry to perceive that gentleman's face assuming a deeper and deeper gloom as he proceeded. "'This is most unfortunate indeed,' said Mr. Prevost at length. "'I quite acquit our poor friend Brooks of any evil intent, but to slay an Indian at all, so near our house, and especially an Anida, was most unlucky.' That tribe or nation, as they call themselves, from the strong personal regard, I suppose, which has grown up accidentally between their chief and myself, has always shown the greatest kindness and friendship toward myself and my family. Before this event, I should have felt myself in any of their villages as much at home as by my own fireside, and I am sure that each man felt himself as secure on any part of the lands granted to me as if he were in his own lodge. But now, as they will call it, their blood has stained my very mat, and the consequences no one can foresee. Woodchuck has himself escaped. He has no relations or friends on whom they can wreak their vengeance. Surely, exclaimed Lord H., they will never visit his offence on you or yours. I trust not, replied Mr. Prevost, after a moment's thought, but yet I cannot feel exactly sure. They will take a white man for their victim, an Englishman, one of the same nation as the offender. Probably it may not matter much to them who it is, and the affectionate regard which they entertain towards us may turn the evil aside. But yet these Indians have a sort of fanaticism in their religion, as well as we have in ours. 
the station and the dignity of the victim which they offer up enters into their consideration they like to make a worthy and an honourable sacrifice as they consider it and just as this spirit moves them or not they may think that any one will do for their purpose or that they are required by their god of vengeance to immolate someone dear to themselves in order to dignify the sacrifice this is indeed a very sad view of the affair which had never struck me replied lord h and it may be well to consider my dear sir what is the best and safest course i must now tell you one of the objects which made me engage your son to carry my dispatches to albany it seemed to me from all i have heard during my short residence with you especially during my conference with sir william johnson that the unprotected state of this part of the country left albany itself and the settlements around it unpleasantly exposed we know that on a late occasion it was Jesco's intention if he had succeeded in defeating sir william and capturing fort george to make a dash at the capital of the province he was defeated but there is no reason to believe that montcalm a man much his superior both in energy and skill entertained the same views although i know not what induced him to retreat so hastily after his black and bloody triumph at fort william henry he may seize some other opportunity and i can perceive nothing whatsoever to impede his progress or delay him for an hour if he can make himself master of the few scattered forts which lie between albany and carillon or ticonderoga in the circumstances i have strongly urged that a small force should be thrown forward to a commanding point on the river hudson not many miles from this place which i examined as i came hither with an advance post or two still nearer to your house my own regiment i have pointed out as better fitted for the service than any other and i think that if my suggestions are attended to as i doubt not they will be we can give you efficient protection but i think continued the young nobleman speaking more slowly and emphatically that with two young people so justly dear to you with a daughter so beautiful and in every way so charming and so gallant and noble a lad as walter whose high spirit and adventurous character will expose him continually to any snares that may be set for him it will be much better for you to retire with them both to albany at least till such time as you know that the spirit of indian vengeance has been satisfied and that the real peril has passed mr prevost mused for several minutes and then replied the motives you suggest are certainly very strong my lord but i have strange ways of viewing such subjects and i must have time to consider whether it is fair and right to my fellow-countrymen scattered over this district to withdraw from my share of the peril which all who remain would have to encounter do not argue with me upon the subject to-night i will think over it well and doubt not that i shall view the plan you have suggested with all the favour that paternal love can afford i will also keep my mind free to receive any further reasons you may have to produce but i must first consider quietly and alone there is no need of immediate decision for these people according to their own code are bound to make themselves perfectly sure that they cannot get possession of the actual slayer before they choose another victim it is clear from what the indian said to the negro boy that they know the hand that did the deed and they must search for poor brooks first and practice every device to allure him back before they immolate another 
Let us both think over the matter well and confer tomorrow. Thus saying, he shook hands with Lord H., and they retired to their several chambers with very gloomy and apprehensive thoughts. Next morning, Mr. Prevost was aroused by a distant knocking at the huts where the outdoor servants slept, and then by a repetition of the sound at the door of the house itself. Rising hastily, he got down in time to see the door opened by old Agrippa, and found a man on horseback bearing a large official-looking letter addressed to Major General Lord H. It proved to be a dispatch from Sir William Johnson requesting both Lord H. and himself to attend a meeting of some of the chiefs of the Five Nations, which was to be held at Johnson Castle on the Mohawk in the course of the following day. The distance was not very great, but still the difficulty of travelling required the two gentlemen to set out at once in order to reach the place of rendezvous before night, and neither liked to neglect what they considered a duty. "'I will mount my horse as soon as it can be got ready,' said Lord H., when he had read the letter and shown it to Mr. Prevost. "'I suppose, in existing circumstances, you will not think it advisable to accompany me?' "'Most certainly I will go with you, my lord,' replied his host. "'As I said last night, the danger, though very certain, is not immediate. "'Weeks, months may pass before these Indians feel assured that they cannot obtain possession of the actual slayer of their red brother.' and as many of the Oneidas will probably be present at this talk, as they call it, I may perhaps, though it is very doubtful, gain some insight into their thoughts and intentions. I will take my daughter with me, however, for I should not like to leave her here altogether alone. Her preparations may delay us for half an hour, but still we have ample time, and the horse of the messenger, who will act as our guide, must have some little time to take rest and food." A very brief time was spent at breakfast, and then the whole party set out on horseback, followed by a negro leading a pack-horse, and preceded by the messenger of Sir William Johnson. Mr. Prevost, the messenger, and the negro were all armed, but Lord H., who had hitherto worn nothing but the common riding-suit in which he had first presented himself, except in his unfortunate expedition with Captain Brooks, had now donned the splendid uniform of a major-general in the British service, and was merely armed with his sword and pistols in the holsters of his saddle. The journey passed without incident. Not a human being was seen for seventeen or eighteen miles, though here and there a small log hut, apparently deserted, testified to the efforts of a new race to wrest their hunting-grounds from the earlier people, efforts too soon, too sadly, and too cruelly to be consummated. The softer light of early morning died away, and then succeeded a warmer period of the day, when the heat became very oppressive, for in the midst of those deep forests with no wind stirring, the change from summer to winter is not felt so rapidly as in more open lands. About an hour after noon they proposed to stop, rest the horses, and take some refreshment, and a spot was selected where some fine oaks spread their large limbs over a beautifully clear little lake or pond, the view across which presented peeps of a distant country, with some blue hills of no very great elevation appearing above the tops of the trees. At the end of an hour the party again mounted and pursued their way, still on through forests and valleys, across streams and by the sides of lakes, till at length, just as the evening sun was reaching the horizon, a visible change took place in the aspect of the country. 
spots were seen which had been cultivated where harvests had grown and been reaped and then a house gleamed here and there through the forest and blue wreaths of smoke might be seen rising up tracks of cart wheels channeled the forest path a cart or wagon was drawn up near the roadside high piles of firewood showed preparation against the bitter winter and everything indicated that the travellers were approaching some new but prosperous settlement soon small traces of the primeval woods except those which the little party left behind them disappeared and a broad tract of well-cultivated country spread out before them with a fine river bounding it at the distance of more than a mile the road too was comparatively good and broad and halfway between the forest and the river that road divided into two one branch going straight on and another leading up the course of the stream is sir william at the hall or at his castle asked mr prevost raising his voice to reach the ears of his guide who kept a little in front he said sir to take you on to the hall if you should come on sir replied the messenger there is a great number of indians up at the castle already and he thought you might perhaps not like to be with them altogether probably not replied mr prevost dryly and they rode on upon the direct road till passing two or three smaller houses they came in sight of a very large and handsome edifice built of wood indeed but somewhat in the style of a european house of the reign of george i as they approached the gates sir william johnson himself now in the full costume of an officer of the british army came down the steps to meet and welcome them and little less ceremonious politeness did he display in the midst of the wild woods of america than if he had been at the moment in the halls of st james's with stately grace he lifted edith from her horse greeted lord a with a deferential bow took mr prevost by the hand and then led them himself to rooms which seemed to have been prepared for them where is my friend walter he said as he was about to lead mr prevost to some short repose what has induced him to deny his old acquaintance the pleasure of his society ha mr prevost does he think to find metal more attractive at your lonely dwelling perhaps he may be mistaken for let me tell you the beautiful atezza is here here in this very house for our good friend gore has so completely anglified her that what between her christianity her beauty and her delicacy i believe she is afraid to trust herself with four or five hundred red warriors at the castle he spoke in a gay and jesting tone and every one knows the blessed facility which parents have of shutting their eyes to the love affairs of their children mr prevost did not in the least perceive anything in the worthy general's speech but a good-humoured joke at the boyish fondness of his son for a pretty indian girl and he hastened to excuse Walter's absence by telling Sir William that he had been sent to Albany on business by Lord H. He then inquired, somewhat anxiously, "'Is our friend the Black Eagle here with his daughter?' "'He is here on the ground,' replied Sir William, "'but not in the house. His Indian habits are of too old standing to be rooted out like Otezas, and he prefers a bearskin and his own blue blanket to the best bed and quilt in the house.' I offered him such accommodation as it afforded, but he declined, with the dignity of a prince refusing the hospitality of a cottage. "'Does he seem in a good humour to-day?' asked Mr. Prevost, hesitating whether he should tell Sir William at a moment, when they were likely to be soon interrupted, the event which had caused so much apprehension in his own mind. 
"'You know he is somewhat variable in his mood.' "'I never remarked it,' replied the other. "'I think he is the most civilised savage I ever saw, "'far more than King Hendrick, "'though the one, since his father's death, "'wears a blue coat, and the other does not. "'He did seem a little grave, indeed, "'but the shadows of Indian mirth and gravity are so faint, "'it is difficult to distinguish them.' While these few words were passing, Mr. Prevost had decided upon his course, and he merely replied, "'Well, Sir William, pray let her taints and know that Edith is here. They will soon be in each other's arms, for the two girls love like sisters.' A few words sprung to Sir William Johnson's lips, which, had they been uttered, might perhaps have opened Mr. Prevost's eyes, at least to the suspicions of his friends. He was on the eve of answering, "'And some day they may be sisters,' but he checked himself, and nothing but the smile which should have accompanied the words made any reply. When left alone, the thoughts of Mr. Prevost reverted at once to more pressing considerations. "'The old chief knows the event,' he said to himself. "'He has heard of it, heard the whole, probably. It is wonderful how rapidly intelligence is circulated amongst this people from mouth to mouth.' He was well-nigh led away into speculations regarding the strange celerity with which news can be carried orally, and was beginning to calculate how much distance to travel would be saved in a given space, by one man shouting the tidings to another at a distance, when he forced back his mind into the track it had left, and came to the full conclusion from his knowledge of the character of the parties, and from all that he had heard, that certainly the Black Eagle was cognizant of the death of one of his tribe by the hand of Captain Brooks, and probably, though not certainly, had communicated the facts but not his views and purposes to his daughter, whose keen eyes were likely to discover much of that which he intended to conceal. End of chapter 6